From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Bone health is important throughout our lives, but it's crucial during childhood when we acquire nearly all of our bone mass. Building healthy bones and treating bone disorders early are key to lifelong bone health. Also on the program, urinary tract infection is often thought of as an adult problem, but children get UTIs, too. And the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recently issued new recommendations for when women should start having mammograms. We'll talk with a women's health expert about what the new guidelines mean. If you're confused about all of this, we'll sort it all out with a Mayo Clinic expert. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Childhood and adolescence. I can't remember back that far, but maybe you can. (laughs) Maybe, if I try real hard. It's a time during which kids develop in a whole lot of different ways, including building the bones that will serve them the rest of their lives. For example, by the age of 18 in girls and 20 in boys, kids have acquired about 90% of their peak bone mass. So it's really important that children do everything they can, mainly through diet and through exercise, to build healthy bones. It's also why childhood bone or skeletal or structural problems, including scoliosis, need to be addressed before adulthood. Here to talk about children's bone health and bone problems is Dr. Todd Milbrandt. Dr. Milbrandt is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Milbrandt. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to talk to you guys today. Todd, nice to have you here. Uh, you, uh, uh, compared to us old-timers, you're sort of a newcomer to the Mayo Clinic. Tell us how you got here. Sure. Um, I joined the staff approximately uh, a year or so ago. Um, I was in practice for about 10 years uh, working with the Shriners Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, and the University of Kentucky uh, orthopedic program that was there. Well, you are both orthopedic surgeons. Um, being that you're a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, it doesn't mean that when you grow up, you're not going to be a pediatric. No, no, no. It's a different thing. <laughs> explain out. the difference. Someday I'll be Dr. Shives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> explain explain <laughs> the difference. Why isn't that Dr. Shives, a regular orthopedic surgeon, doesn't work with children? What's the difference? Well, um, we do, uh, pediatric orthopedic surgeons uh, in general do a year of extra uh, training just focused on those orthopedic issues that are deal with growing children. And mm. so there are many uh, sub-portions of orthopedics, just like there are hand surgeons and hip surgeons and spine surgeons, my subspecialty is pediatrics. We like to say that we are some of the last general orthopedic surgeons that uh, exist in a subspecialty hospital because I operate all over the ch- in any location along, among, in a child, and that could be from their arms to their hips to their backs to their feet, um, just so that we can uh, make sure that these kids with their orthopedic injuries are taken care of. Um, Is there anything that you prefer? Do you like working with backs or with mm-hmm. feet, or what do you what do you prefer? Well, um, I have a lot of training in pediatrics 
spine. And so scoliosis, which um, we will probably talk about today, is something that is a part of my training, and I really enjoy uh, helping those families through the uh, both, you know, it's a scary uh, diagnosis to get uh, for many families if it's new to them. And so to help them walk through the treatment of bracing and or surgery uh, is really satisfying to me. I also, a, a big, big portion of my practice is pediatric trauma. Um, and so we do uh, take care of the broken bones that actually happen to one third of American children uh, will receive a, bo- a broken bone. And so, you know, our services um, uh, are really needed in, in that area, and I'm happy to help. So there's a significant difference uh, in, with regard to a fracture, whether you're talking about an adult or a, or a child. It really takes a, a, a specialist, or it's good to have a, a pediatric orthopedist take care of your child if they have a fracture. That's right. And th- the biggest reason uh, why I would say that is true is because there is a growing, uh, what we call the growth plate, or an area of cartilage near the end of the bone that allows the child to grow in length, but that changes the game in how you manage the fracture. Sometimes the fracture is through that area, and sometimes the fracture can be left a little bit offset, and the body will actually correct itself over time. And so having a good understanding of how much growth is remaining, what is acceptable, what isn't, uh, can really help um, the family. Uh, maybe even avoid surgery um, uh, and be treated in a cast. Well, you know what? We want to spend some time on, on scoliosis, but fortunately we've got plenty of time. So before we go there, I want to ask you about backpacks because everybody's got a backpack. Your kids both got backpacks? They are so heavy, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they do. And yeah. you know, adults have backpacks. You see yeah. them at the airport now. Um, and it, it's it's really interesting. But we've heard some warnings about backpacks and, and children. Give us some tips. And, and have you seen problems with uh, kids carrying backpacks that might be too heavy? Yeah, so we do address this in our clinic all the time. Uh, families come in concerned about the weight of the backpack um, and whether or not it could create a curvy spine or a scoliosis. Um, there is no evidence that that can happen. However, what we do see are children where their backpacks are overloaded, which they can be uh, when they're trying to carry all their books, is that they get some back pain. And that's usually because the kids have uh, lower strength of their abdominal muscles, um, or what we would call uh, a little out of shape. And when they do that, and then they still try and carry around a heavy backpack, that gives them the pain. And so it's not causing long-term problems for these kids, but when we do see them, we try and uh, talk about abdominal strength, try and talk about other fitness programs that could then maybe help them adjust to a heavier backpack. Or the alternative is if it really becomes bad. We work with the schools to try and get two sets of books, one set for home, one set for school, until the child can then build up the strength so that then they can carry these heavier backpacks. So we're talking about core strength here, and you mentioned abdominal strength at sit-ups, or or what what do they do? do to increase their abdominal strength? Yeah, so they do some of this stuff in gym class when you talk to the kids, but they think, you know, they, they when I talk to my own kids, they at least they cheat, you know, they put their knees down. We're talking sit-ups. We're also talking plank, which is where they, uh, is the top part of a push-up. You can imagine what plank is. The other things are um, even uh, abdominal curls where you hang from a pole and you bring your legs upwards towards the ceiling. These are all things that can really help kids uh, make uh, uh, their abdominal strength stronger and then be able to carry these heavier loads. I would say that um, 
many kids who play sports or are involved in athletic activities have good core strength because they're required to say you know run up and down the basketball court or the soccer field they have to have this kind of increased abdominal strength so if they are involved in sports um, this can really help them in terms of their core strength so a heavy backpack won't cause scoliosis or curvature of the spine but it may cause back pain in which case you ought to take some of the books out or increase your core strength huh? that, that's right that's what your recommendation dr Todd Milbrand, pediatric orthopedic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. We need to tr- take a short break, and but when we come back, we're going to be talking about scoliosis and also childhood obesity. Does it have an effect on bone, joint, and muscle health? All that coming up. Later on in the hour, children and UTIs, plus the latest recommendations for breast cancer screening. Some of our guests are recorded during a Periscope session. Get the Periscope app for iOS or Android. Follow Mayo Clinic and join us when we Periscope. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is pediatric orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Todd Milbrandt, recently uh, from the University of... Were you in Kentucky? I was, Lexington. At, at the Shriners Hospital. I was. Good system to work in. Yeah, the Shriner system is an amazing has an amazing history of taking care of children with orthopedic uh, diseases. Uh, they have a large foundation that uh, really is. Um relatively unknown about how they uh, uh, can support such a large system of hospitals within it's incredible, the incredible isn't it yeah all right so let's talk about scoliosis curvature of the spine and uh, tell us uh, who's at risk um, and how you make the diagnosis and then we'll talk about treatment sure so the diagnosis is typically made by either their uh, parents uh, who are seeing their children in a swimsuit um, who can see some changes in the back and usually what we see is a prominence of one of the uh, wing bones, what we call the scapula, uh, or even when they bend over, they see a little bit of a larger prominence, a, a hump on the back of their uh, mid-back or low back. Um, however, if you live in an area where you're not seeing your children in swimsuits, this can be a challenge for diagnosis. And so we usually have relied on our primary care physicians, our family practitioners, and our pediatricians to make what about that diagnosis. school nurse? I thought I it was know. the school nurse who always diagnosed scoliosis. <laughs> yeah. School nurses, unfortunately, have left the school systems for budgetary reasons, and there was uh, there have been a couple papers that showed um, maybe not that it wasn't as uh, efficacious to have school nurses making this diagnosis, and so we've moved away because of false negatives, false positives. That's right, false then yeah, that's right. So they would miss some, and they would call some that weren't. But I guess the latter is better than the former, isn't that's it? That's right. Most well, but budget cuts, so there's no nurse at the school anymore, huh? Um, there is. Is in our school district, they are shared amongst the school buildings. Uh-huh. But yeah. Yeah, it's, t- it's, it's not tough. very common. And I think that it, mostly it was false positives. And so they were really looking at how many kids came to uh, an office like mine, g- obtained x-rays, needed to take time away from school, and then they had what we would call scoliosis or noliosis. So it was something that was basically a com- per- perfectly straight spine. Good night, good night diagnosis to have. <laughs> exactly good diagnosis to have. Uh, but it's just family. a percentage, too. I mean, isn't that how it's determined that you have a, this whatever percentage 
curvature of the spine? So it's not a percentage. It's really a, a angle measurement. And okay. so we make that angle measurement. Uh, you can't. You can make uh, some uh, angle measurements uh, on the physical examination, but to get down to the detail of it, you really do need a high-quality X-ray of the back, and it needs to be of the entire back because there are some curves that kind of hide. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's really important to. Um, if you're seeing your primary care physician, obtain that x-ray or if that uh, x-ray is not available in your area to see someone like me and we can make sure that we get it checked out. Girls more common than boys still? For sure. So girls, uh, girl to boy ratio is about seven to one. And so uh, it's very much a uh, female diagnosis, but that we still see plenty of boys who have this. Uh, and, and what it really comes down to is that this is a genetic inherited uh, uh, defect within one, a gene. It's not one gene. If it were one gene, we'd already have it figured out, but it's in multiple genes. And in fact, here at the clinic, we've collaborated with a hospital in Texas to try and pool some of these patients to figure out exactly what is the gene that causes scoliosis. I thought it was always the tall girls. If you grew too fast, that's what gave you scoliosis. (laughs) That's what your grandma told you, isn't it? Well, that's what the school nurse told me. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not really tall girls. It can be tall girls, short girls, big girls, small girls. It really is based on your gene makeup Hmm. and not necessarily what your phenotype is. And in fact, as the, we're going to talk about obesity here in a minute, but as uh, our children have gotten larger, that diagnosis uh, has been made more difficult um, because sometimes these curves hide out uh, when you can't really see them. All right, so there are curves and then there are bigger curves. Uh, when do you institute treatment and, and how does that work? How do you decide what treatment is appropriate? Yeah, so when we talk to families, we talk to them either about watching the curve, uh, bracing the curve, or having an operation on the curve. And it really depends on how big those curves are. If the curve is in general uh, less than 15 degrees, that is a simple observation because most of the time those curves don't change. However, when we move them into the 20 to 25 degree range, uh, and the child has at least two years of growth remaining, and that's a little bit of a hard call to make, then a brace is what we would then prescribe. There's been a recent large-scale article and research about bracing in kids that really has cemented our our confidence in that treatment protocol. It was published in New England Journal of Medicine, and if you know anything about orthopedics, not very many things get published in New England Journal of Medicine. And that's because most orthopedists don't read it. That's right. Exactly right. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad that. that the orthopedist said that. <laughs> so the, the bottom line is that we really do believe in brace treatment, but the key with brace treatment is it has to be caught in a young enough patient. If you bring me a 17-year-old, I can't. Ha- I could, that brace is no longer going to work because there's no long, uh, there's not enough growth remaining to make an effect. And then the last group of patients are those curves that are greater than fi- uh, 50 degrees, and they will more than likely benefit from an operation. And that includes a posterior spinal fusion with instrumentation. Posterior meaning from behind. That's right. As opposed from in front. That's right. So it's a, 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 a incision along the back where we place two rods along the spine and straighten out that curve. And the biggest reason we do that is because if we left those curves alone, they would continue to progress in that child's lifetime at an average of two to three degrees a year and leave them in their mid-40s to mid-50s with 100-degree to 115-degree curves. And that is just uh, simply hard for these kids to, to have in their growing up. We used to say that it would shorten our lives.
lives. I'm not sure that that's probably true, but if you can imagine a large 100-degree uh, curve, that's significantly deforming for that child. Well, you're, there you go, the short course on the treatment of scoliosis. That was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the brace is sort of a pain in the neck, isn't it? Do they have to wear it 24 hours a day? Our prescription is 24. We are actually getting uh, the last five years, we've actually put temperature gauges in the braces to see how long kids are actually wearing the braces. <laughs> and as you can you imagine, can't cheat. that's right. As you can imagine, <laughs> there is a uh, dis- distinct discrepancy between what they tell you and what they actually wear. Really? But the good news about wearing the braces, we can actually see those kids who succeeded with an X number of hours in our, our mind, it's about 16 hours. Uh, if they can wear it 16 hours, they will have a good effect. I always tell my patients that they need to wear it 23 hours out of the day um, in the hopes that I get 16. Yeah, pretty neat. Uh, childhood obesity, increasing at an alarming rate. Now one out of three kids in the United States is either overweight or obese. What effect does that have? Have you seen what effect uh, on the bones, the muscles, kids' uh, structure? So development, yeah. Yeah. So um, childhood obesity is a significant problem for us in our clinic uh, for a number of reasons. The first is they are more susceptible to having fractures that are, when they do get fractures, they get them at a more severe rate. They involve the joint surface, which are hard fractures for us to uh, treat and also may have longer-term consequences. In addition, these kids... um, uh, that are obese have uh, different endocrine uh, issues as well so that maybe their uh, maturity is pushed up. And so they've stopped. Uh, they, they're now, while they look nine, they're actually a bone age of 12. And that goes back to this whole issue about scoliosis screening. And they may be too late to have a brace if they're, uh, if they're significantly obese. So they have more fractures. They have worse fractures. Anything mm-hmm. else? They can also have all of the same uh, problems that an obese adult has, high blood pressure, diabetes, and if you have those things as a child, then that's just longer-term problems for them uh, uh, through their adulthood. If they are obese as a child, they are nearly 90%, uh, have a 90% chance of being an obese adult. I have to ask you, uh, we have about one minute left. Uh, Everyone for Christmas or through the holidays got a hoverboard. A lot of kids got hoverboards. What have you seen in uh, surgical situations with hoverboards? So it is, one of my partners calls it the fracture machine. Oh my gosh. And so it basically (laughs) has, uh, in some, I have a couple other partners that live in Florida and in Texas, and they basically have said that over Christmas they treated greater than 20 fractures operatively from hoverboards. So these are things that really need to be, uh, you need to careful, make sure you have a hand on something while you're trying to learn how to make this thing move, and maybe even if your child isn't that coordinated, not buy it for them. Right, and thank goodness they don't make them with snow tires, so we don't have to (laughs) worry about them here in Minnesota in the winter. Dr. Todd Milbrandt, pediatric orthopedic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Coming up on Mayo Clinic Radio, when your child complains of a burning sensation while urinating, you may not suspect urinary tract infection, but children can get UTIs too. Co-host Dr. Dan Elliott joins me to discuss UTIs in children. And we'll review the latest breast cancer screening guidelines issued by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email to Mayo Clinic Radio 
at mayo.edu. We'd like to extend a special Mayo Clinic radio greeting to our listeners in Prescott, Arizona, who hear us on KYCA AM. Also, hello to our Cleveland area listeners who listen on WNZN-FM in Lorain, Ohio. These are just two of our over 70 affiliate stations who broadcast our program nationwide. Thanks for listening. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Barbie is getting a makeover. Finally, finally, Barbie has decided to represent uh, all the different bodies in the world and not just represent just this thin ideal that most of us can't attain, that's not attainable. Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Jordan Rulo applauds Mattel for creating new dolls that are shaped more like real people. She says the super thin dolls could potentially impact self-esteem and create body image issues. Poor body image uh, is related to depression, uh, isolation, uh, disordered eating. Uh, So it has some major impacts on just overall your sense of well-being. So Barbie, the hugely popular toy since her debut in 1959, is evolving to better represent what real girls and women look like. Oh, look, there's a diversity of bodies, and I look like that, and oh, that doll looks like me. Dr. Rulo says that helps build self-esteem and may help more kids feel better about their own bodies. I'm Vivian Williams, and for more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dan Elliott. And I'm Tracy McRae. Urinary tract infections, commonly referred to as UTIs, are usually thought of as an adult problem. Often affecting women, UTIs can cause painful urination, pelvic pain, sometimes even blood in the urine. But children can also get UTIs. And because UTIs is often thought of as an adult problem, some parents and actually physicians might not think of a UTI when a child presents with symptoms. Here to talk about UTI in children is Mayo Clinic pediatric urologist Dr. Candice Granberg. Welcome to the program, Dr. Granberg. It's really nice to meet you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'd have to say, much like Dr. Elliott said, um, I'm a mom, and luckily my kids have never had this because the thought has never even crossed my mind that kids can get UTIs. UTI. Sure can. So how does it present? Different? Is it differently than adults? It is, and it's dependent on age. So obviously a baby can't really tell you if something is wrong with them. And so for babies, sometimes the only symptom will be a fever. And so a fever in a baby, they go to their pediatrician, they look in the ears, the eyes, they're listening to their chest, and eventually they might get a urine sample and look for an infection in the bladder. Sometimes they'll just be fussy or just not seem like themselves. Whereas an older child who can tell you, it hurts when I pee, that might be a sign that they have a bladder infection. Other times the child is dry, they're toilet trained, and all of a sudden they have accidents. And then that can be a sign that they have an infection in their bladder. Now, does it affect boys and girls the same, or is there one uh, more than the other? So in boys, it usually affects them when they're babies. And it's more common as age goes up that it's going to be in a girl. And so for babies in the first year of life, it's more common in boys. And then after that, it's in girls. What's the main reason that children get UTIs? So because of the age situation for boys, it's usually an anatomic problem where they have urine that goes back and forth between their bladder and their kidneys. Because that's all still developing to some extent? Yep, for boys for sure, because they can grow out of it and then it's not a problem anymore and they may never have an infection again. 
and they could have something wrong where their urine doesn't come out the right way, where there's a blockage that needs to be fixed, and an infection is the first sign that something's wrong on the inside. That blockage could be up near their kidneys. It could be down where their pee comes out. Mm-hmm. And in girls, the difference is they don't have the same anatomy as a boy, sure. and so they certainly could have urine that goes back and forth between their kidneys, and that's what's relating to the infection. Or sometimes it's just when kids are toilet training and they start holding their pee, they start holding their poop, and then it all sets up for an infection. So toilet training is a very common age that we see kids with infections. When you mentioned uh, potty training, I thought, oh, well, maybe they're not wiping correctly. That does happen. We always instruct our girls to wipe from front to back. Um, Another common question we get from parents that have had a child with a bladder infection is, I was told by somebody they can't take bubble baths anymore because bubble baths cause bladder infections. And it's actually just the irritative stuff that are in the scented bath soaps and the bubbly ones that can irritate kids' skin. And then that opens up areas where they can get irritated and then they could feel like they have an infection, but it doesn't necessarily cause infection. Is there a difference between um, when it comes to kids like a yeast infection and a urinary tract infection? Can girls, little girls get yeast infections? Like from, you said a bubble bath and that's Mm -hmm. the first thing that popped to mind. Yeah, so yeast infections actually aren't super common in kids unless maybe they were just on an antibiotic for something else, like an ear infection. But a yeast infection in a kid, first of all, I'd be worried about something else going on having them screened by their pediatrician for maybe too much sugar in their urine rather than an infection. Okay, so now when a child comes in with their parents come in, I imagine Mm -hmm. they're very nervous about this. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do for these individuals? How are you going to work them up? So the first step is to get a urine sample, and it's it's very tough to talk to parents about this because the cleanest way to get a urine sample from a child that's not toilet trained is with a catheter. And so everyone says, oh, my gosh, they're going to put a catheter in my baby or in my toddler. But in a non-toilet trained kid, that's the cleanest way. Otherwise, there are poop bugs on the skin, and if they just put a tinkle bag on that sticks on their skin, then they collect the pee that way. It's a dirty sample, and we don't know do they truly have a bladder infection or not. Okay, now is there going to be a difference because the bladder, where the holds the urine, versus the kidneys? Mm-hmm. Are you going to see a difference, and should the parent be more concerned with one or the other? Yes. So usually the ones that are just in the bladder are not associated with a fever, mm-hmm. and those are less worrisome because we feel like a fever is affecting the kidneys. Are they going to have any scarring on their kidneys, their kidney function? Is that going to be impaired? And so when a fever is affected you know, in a child with an infection, then we're much more concerned. And so lots of kids get infections without a fever, and we say, well, let's see why that happened. Maybe it's because they're holding their pee or their poop. But if they have a fever, yes, we start worrying about their kidneys. And is there, you mentioned from infants all the way up to school age, is there an age where when it comes to just the development of children that they are more likely to get a urinary tract infection? So the first year of life is the most common time for both boys and girls to get an infection. Mm -hmm. After that, the next most common time is during toilet training, and again, that's more common in girls. Okay, now I have a question. Now I have a daughter. She loves mm-hmm. it that you're using her as an example. She will love it. But let's say she has these bladder infections, child. Mm-hmm. Should I expect her for the rest of her life to have these bladder infections? Is it going to impact when she's an adult? That's a great question. So most of the time, kids who get an infection, even with a fever, only a third of them will get another infection later in their life, and only 10% of them will get a third. And so usually if a kid gets an infection with a fever, hopefully and most likely that's going to be their only 
only infection. If they continue to get infections, by all means, that's when we start to worry about, is there something that we need to fix? Is the treatment different for children than it is for adults? Yes. And so the types of antibiotics that we can use in babies are different because they're still developing their kidneys and their livers and everything. And so there's certain antibiotics that we can and can't use. And they, the, still the first treatment is just antibiotics. Sometimes if it's a baby, they have to be in the hospital with an IV and other kids can just go home and take it by mouth like a grown-up. Mm-hmm. Are there things that parents can do to help prevent UTIs? So especially when you're talking about toilet training kids, you know, we don't like kids to hold their pee for too long. That's one of the number one reasons kids can get infections hmm. in their bladder and also holding their poop. And so the same poop bugs are what cause bladder infections. And so we always tell parents that we like kids to pee on a schedule. We don't want them to hold all day long at school and come home and only pee ah, two, three times okay. a day. So <laughs> so I have a daughter. She's yeah. five and a half. And when I see her... Who's adorable, she I might is. Add. Yeah. <laughs> When I see her crossing her legs yeah. and I can tell, oh, I bet she has to go. And she says, I don't have to go. I say, you know what? Your kidneys are always making pee. I bet you should go and try. Let's go see if there's any in there. We, all, we do have a lot of parents do reward programs with a sticker chart. Yeah. We have a periscope viewer that wants to know, is there any difference when it comes to circumcision for little boys if it helps or hinders UTIs? There is. In the first few months of life, boys who are not circumcised do have a higher risk of getting an infection in their urine, but they actually grow out of that with time. And so it's hard to know if you did a circumcision to prevent future infections Was it the circumcision that fixed it, or were they not going to get another one anyway? So it is an increased risk in younger boys, but it doesn't warrant doing a circumcision in all boys just to prevent a bladder infection. Very good. You kept mentioning the children who have to poop. Mm -hmm. Classic doctor term, poop. Yes. That's the that's the sewage department. We're talking Mm -hmm. plumbing here with the bladder. Why is there a relationship there? Well, the... The bladder, where the, where the urine is and where the poop is, that all sits in the same place inside the body. And if you have a big old poop sitting in there, it's going to push on your bladder. Ah, okay. And then your bladder might not empty all the way. It might not squeeze the right way. It might squeeze when it's not supposed to. And so it's really hard for kids to hold their poop without also holding their pee. Ah, good point. They're holding everything. And so it's really hard. And so they really just have to get used to emptying everything. I think we should maybe wrap this up before any of the three of us embarrass any of our children anymore. So thank <laughs> you. you. Thanks so there much, Dr. Go. Granberg, for your insights into the mm-hmm. diagnosis and treatment of urinary tract infections in children. Dr. Candace Granberg is a pediatric urologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, the latest USPSTF breast cancer screening guidelines. When to begin getting mammograms and how often to have them once you start. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Last month, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force issued its latest set of recommendations for breast cancer screening mammograms. The USPSTF is one of several national organizations that publish screening guidelines for breast cancer. While screening guidelines are useful in helping women decide when to get a mammogram, there is sometimes variation or disagreement in the guidelines from one group to another, and that can leave some women confused about what's best for them. Here to talk about the latest breast cancer screening mammogram guidelines is Dr. Karthik Ghosh. 
Dr. Ghosh is an internal medicine specialist and director of the Mayo Clinic Breast Diagnostic Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Ghosh. Good to have you back. Thank you, uh, Dr. Shives, and thanks, Tracy, for the opportunity to be here to talk with you uh, about this important topic on screening mammography. So if we weren't already confused about uh, when to start getting mammograms and how often, we are now. So what uh, is it that what the latest guidelines from the from the government and uh, why do they keep changing? Exactly. <laughs> why keep confusing us? I think this is an, uh, you know, it's an ever change, ever evolving area, but truly the basic concept still is fairly important and straightforward in that we need screening mammography. There is data that shows that screening mammography does help reduce breast cancer mortality. And the current guidelines really uh, make it very clear. The USPSTF guidelines 2016, the one thing that is still Table and unchanged is that screening mammography recommended for women 50 to 74 years of age. And so the question of the changes for the women 40 to 49, and uh, that's kind of the area that has somewhat changed because the USPSTF says that that usually initially it was screening mammography should start at age 40, and now it says start at age 50. The, the difference is only that the, for women 40 to 49 years of age, this should be an individualized decision made by the patient after discussing the pros and cons and limitations with her physician. It, it, that makes sense, don't yes, you think? Absolutely, you and I think that's a reasonable discussion. It's just that I think when guidelines come up and show that change from 40 to 50 patients are confused. Women in general are confused and that's understandable. So hence this this kind of discussion to enable patients understand what is the difference and how does it affect their decision making. Usually guidelines get more and more cautious and so to have it be a little pull back and no, not at 40, let's start at 50. I think that is what was surprising to people. True, that's right. And it's also important that women understand why the difference but also also make make sure that they are their own advocates, that they understand the reason and what is important to them. And that's where for women to, so 50 to 74 year old women with the recommendation is your, the screening mammography, irregular screening mammography is recommended. I'm going to come back to the in screening interval because that was a difference also from what was previously discussed by the USPS task force. So for women 40 to 49, they have to understand that the benefits and risks are what we're talking about. The benefits still exist. There is still a reduction in mortality. Um, so that's the benefit that women experience if they have yearly screening mammography. The difference is that the benefit is somewhat smaller compared to women 50 and older. And the reason being younger women, the incidence of breast cancer is less in those women. So hence the mortality benefit, even though there is a benefit, it may appear smaller. The other aspect of it is, so that's the benefit part of it. The other aspect that USPS Task Force emphasizes is the false positives, so callbacks and additional benign biopsies that may result from that, and that there is anxiety related to the false positives. So those were the two elements that the USPS task force addressed. But for Mayo Clinic, we want to make sure that when women make that individualized decision, they need to understand the additional benefits also exist, which is that if you do yearly screening mammography for that 40 to 
year age group, not only is there the mortality benefit, yes, albeit smaller compared to the women 50 and older, the other element is if you catch cancer while it is smaller, earlier stage, perhaps the options for treatment are better in that you may have the option of less extensive surgery, you may not need chemotherapy. So some of the morbidity benefits have also got to be addressed with the patient. So that's the benefits part of it. In terms of the risk, yes, the risk exists, the, the risk of callbacks and the false positives that result. False positives, meaning that you, it looks like something is there and it really isn't anything bad. That's exactly right. So we generally say that if a 1,000 women go undergo screening mammogram, about 100 may be called back for additional testing. And that leads to about uh, 12 biopsies and finally four cancers are diagnosed. So pretty much eight of those women had benign biopsies. But then it is for the woman to decide what is what more worrisome to me. Do I rather take that benefit of getting an early diagnosis versus am I too worried about the callbacks? Because it's, it's an individualized decision, and, and that is where women need to understand the benefits and the risks. Who, who composes the, the committee that makes these guidelines? It's a multidisciplinary team of specialists that... Uh, make these guidelines. And, you know, they base their recommendations on epidemiologic studies. There are lots and lots of studies on screening mammography. And that's what I think makes it very hard. When we are talking to patients, it's like, how do you bring a summary of studies done on a variety of different populations of women to our patient? And that one patient that matters to you, how do you replicate that data for them? But I think when you come to patients, patients have to have a broader perspective. And that's kind of what we're trying to ensure that they understand that. So the bottom line is that uh, mammogram at age 50, but for some women, based on a discussion with their physician, it may be appropriate to have your first mammogram at age 40. I think yes. And Mayo actually does say that default to yearly screening starting at 40, uh, if the patient is not yet able to decide or has not had the opportunity to have that discussion, the default should be start at age 40. And so women at average risk of breast cancer is all those screening guidelines. So that kind of clarifies this is for women with no family history who do not have chest wall radiation history or BRCA mutation carriers. The high-risk families are very different uh, screening. So that's where the MRI with mammography recommendations come in. You mentioned uh, dense breasts, and that's kind of one of the buzzwords when it comes to uh, what's happening at the breast clinic. So why does that make a difference, and how does that change the recommendations? Thank you, Tracy. So uh, in, um, you know, mammographic breast density refers to when a woman has a mammogram, um, particularly when younger women, they have a lot of uh, glandular and fibrous tissue component uh, in the breast, and that on mammography looks like white or dense tissue. Well, tumors are all also white, and so you're trying to get assess it, trying to find a white-looking white cancer. White on white itself. White. Oh. That's exactly right. So we know that mammographic density reduces the sensitivity or the ability of a mammogram to pick up cancer. But we also know that almost half of the women who have screening mammograms may have dense breasts. So that's what makes it challenging is that in a lot of the women who have dense breasts, you may miss cancers. So there are no clear guidelines on what you do with with, for women with dense breasts in terms of screening. But what we now do is, number one, is educating women. What does that mean? It implies that, yes, your mammogram may not be very sensitive, that it may miss cancers. If you feel a lump, definitely go check it, have it checked out. don't rely on a normal mammogram alone. Um, that, that's an important part that women need to be aware of. And then the option of supplemental screening. 
So what this is, in women who have dense breast on a mammogram, they have the option of picking some additional screening that may add more uh, ability to pick up cancer. So those are, there are a variety of tests available. Um, there are no clear guidelines. So each center uh, builds consensus-driven approach to dealing with this. Um, the four tests generally offered, there is tomosynthesis, that's digital breast tomosynthesis, there's um, molecular breast imaging, there's whole breast ultrasound and breast MRI. Now each center has its has its best test, uh, you know, so for example, Mayo, we have molecular breast imaging and tomosynthesis. These are the two tests we offer. You know, in our studies, we've found that uh, tomosynthesis can pick up an additional one to two cancers per thousand women screened versus molecular breast imaging picks up about six to seven, uh, in some studies, up to nine additional cancers for women with dense breasts. So there are choices there that we can talk to patients about. Fairly complex, isn't it? Yes. It's a good thing there are people like you around to help guide women when it comes, particularly those with dense breasts, and how often to get their mammogram and what other tests might be available and which ones they should have. Perfect. And the other thing we've done, Tom, is we've actually put in, uh, we've created some YouTube videos also to just help educate, because this is something we want want material to be out there so women can find it easy to access and discuss and decide for themselves. Perfect. Dr. Kartha Ghosh, Director of the Breast Diagnostic Clinic, Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.